You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We have an excellent guest today. He's a friend and mentor and also a consultant I've used for multiple companies. His name is David Quick. He is the CEO of Helping Bulls Thrive in China Shops. And, uh, you know, our podcast show is called Beyond the Ordinary. And I bet listeners, you've never heard of a business called Helping Bulls Thrive in China Shops. So, David, let's dive right into it. Tell us what it is you do at Helping Bulls Thrive. Tommy, at its core, we're a coaching company, whether that's executives, their teams, and we're really focused on that bull. And for me, that's a gender neutral term. It is someone that is in a position of power that has this kind of remarkable focus on life. And it is power, passion, forward looking. I tell people all the time, my bull persona personally comes from my mom. So it's not a male driven analogy when I use the word bull. There are plenty of female bulls in the world, that's for sure. And it's about helping those people and their organizations thrive. And we do that in a multitude of ways that I'm sure we'll dive in today. So, David, it sounds like when you say bull, that's not necessarily in a negative context. No, for me, that's uh, power, passion, doing something remarkable. You know, behind me, the herd you deserve. Uh, there's this connotation of this powerful team of bulls that are all pulling really hard. You get the protection of the herd, you get the power of the herd, and you get this, you know, uh, really large beast doing remarkable things together. So, It's not even kind of this individual persona, but I always view that for organizations that want to be powerful and remarkable, it takes this collection of bulls to do those remarkable, tough things. I love that. And listeners, you know, David has a great background for what we're up to here at the show. He's been a founder. He's been a business leader. He's also out there helping business leaders, and he's just done a tremendous job of that. And the place where I have personally used his services multiple times is as it relates to culture. And, you know, David, we'll get into values in a moment, but as it relates to culture, tell our listeners what you believe about the importance of culture in an organization. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there from a culture perspective. Three times CEO, I go, that's the most important thing we do. How do we set the culture in our organization? And for me, That's really just four simple things to list and four difficult things to put in action. And it's, for me, all of them are compelling and repelling. That the more powerful like a magnet, you build a compelling vision, which is the first component, that that it brings people toward you, but it also pushes people away. And like a placard on the front of the bus, it says, here's where we're going. And I use that placard on the front of the bus because people understand that. If you were going into a bus depot and you were dying to go to San Francisco and you look up and see buses to Chicago and Green Bay and you're not getting on the bus, you're looking for the bus and dying to get on the bus that's going to San Francisco. And our vision of future should be the same for organizations. So that's the first component. The second is values that you alluded to, Tommy, and it's how do we want everyone to act and behave? And those should be named behaviors in your organization that help people understand this is how we want you to act and behave. I often joked in my own companies and work with companies saying, and I talk about it with everyone, if you're like in Sesame Street, not like the others, then you're going to stand out here. If you can't live our core values regularly, show up with intention and 
act and behave the way we have listed. And, you know, one of my favorites is we're all willing to sweep floors. People understand that. There's a connotation of, well, we'll dive in and do whatever it takes. I always take that kind of core value further and say, Tommy, you're getting ready to come and join our company. One of our core values is we're all willing to sweep floors. I'm sure you understand what that means. We're all willing to pitch in. But for me, it means something slightly different. And the way I frame it is, if one day I ask you to do something and I see an eye roll because you think that's beneath you or some small task, I'm going to remind you of this conversation and go, remember the day I told you we're all willing to sweep floors and if I see eye rolls? If that eye roll continues over three or four times about this kind of thing, I'm eventually going to ask you to leave. So core values should set the tone and tenor how we want everyone to act and behave. It should set a metric that we can measure people by. And eventually, if they can't adhere, they're that unlike the others, we ask them to leave. So vision values, the next is expectations. And most people understand that. I almost always in my organizations that I ran and those that I deal with set those remarkably high. And the way I frame it is, are you the New England Patriots of old or new? Meaning we go every year and expect to win the Super Bowl. Is that the expectation? Or are you the Cleveland Browns of old that go, we just hope we win a game. And so where are you at in that expectation tier? And I go, the best organizations on the planet are always reaching, always wanting more, always setting remarkably high expectations for all. And the last one is engagement. Do we meet each other in meaningful ways that we go, we're whatever the vernacular is for your team. Are we a loving family? Do we meet regularly? Are we transparent? How do we have one-on-one conversations, group conversations, all of those things? And the four of those build this remarkable kind of cohesive magnet that continues as you intentionally fuel it, get stronger. And Tommy, I'm sure you've saw that in your own organizations, that the more we do that, the stronger the magnet becomes, and it becomes this self-fulfilling loop of more people are attracted to us. And oh, by the way, the right people are attracted to us and the wrong people are pushed away. And My favorite view of culture is Simon Sinek talks about it in a way that says it's like going to the gym. Day one, it hurts. It's painful. When you set out to change your culture and you look in the mirror and go, this is painful and we don't look any different when we look in the mirror. Well, six months of dedicated focus on that doesn't hurt anymore. When you look in the mirror, you go, we're a different organization six months later, a year later, two years later. And that we're living these words, particularly core values, every day. And the better job you do of that, set high expectations, make your vision clear to everyone, and engage in meaningful ways, that's the essence of leadership to me and allows organizations to move and do remarkable things. So listeners, you just got a taste of what we're going to push into today, and I'm really excited to do it. But before we get there, I want to step back just for a moment with David And David, tell us where your leadership journey actually started. You know, those are always interesting questions, Tommy. We tend to talk about, oh, here's all the great stuff that we've done. And I'm self-admitted, go, I've done plenty of wrong stuff. So while I'll give you kind of the, the Cliff Notes version of my background, believe me, there's a bunch of trials, tribulations, failures mixed in there that make each of us who we are. At a high level, a a rural Indiana kid, grew up all over. My dad was in the Air Force, but, you know, I still call rural Indiana home. Live in Bloomington, Indiana today, but grew up in northern Indiana. U.S. Naval Academy graduate. So out of all that, I decided, hey, my dad was in the Air Force. Military was kind of an important thing for me and to serve. So chose the Naval Academy, 
was fortunate enough to get accepted and get through the place. Some academic probation mixed in there and a bunch of those other things. So clearly not like the best student in the world, but graduated from Naval Academy, surface warfare officer, did that for eight years, went back to the Naval Academy as an instructor and, you know, a part of my life that I absolutely loved. Left the Navy and started selling medical equipment, kind of climbed the typical corporate ladder. Eventually, three-time CEO, some of those in the medical space, some of those out. And then now a Vistage chair. So post kind of running companies, uh, Vistage is the world's largest CEO peer-to-peer organization for business leaders and run a group in Bloomington, Indiana and a group in Indianapolis. I also do a bunch of leadership coaching for individuals and teams. I'm a culture index licensee that uses personality for hiring, motivation, and team dynamics. And recently, a Pinnacle Guide, which is a spinoff from some of the EOS implementers and just a remarkable tool set of helping organizations do what I just talked about, vision, values, expectation, and engagement, and helping organizations all over North America do that today. So that's the positive spin. There's plenty that we could talk about of uh, not not so positive and business failures and everything in between. Well, one of the things we talk about a lot on this show, actually, David, is that in business, failure is only failure if we don't learn from it. Absolutely. And each of us that had success understand that along the way, there were setbacks and if not just full out failure, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing that background. And so listeners, you know, it takes a lot to get into the Naval Academy. And then the entire training, the entire focus while there is on leadership. And how do you go out and lead soldiers into the future? A lot of that leadership and training David has taken out into the roles he's carried on even beyond the military and certainly has been just a tremendous guide uh, for organizations that I've been a part of. So David, I want to push into the value side a little bit because that's where you and I got the most connected. We were launching a new company and we knew we wanted to drive an excellent culture. We wanted to be different. This was in the financial services sector. I really believe this would apply to any business anywhere. We wanted to be really intentional about our culture. And without someone like you, I think what most businesses do is they end up kind of just writing down three to five to 12 words that sounded good. And they're like, yeah, we think those are important. And that's what they end up with as their values. And I'll share a personal example. The very first financial service company I joined is a you know large insurance agency. This is over 20 years ago. I still remember the words of what their values are today. It was these six words, trust, strength, integrity, quality, respect, community. Why do I remember them? Because our first week in training, we had to memorize those and we got quizzed on them. But I do not know what those meant inside of this organization. To this day, I don't. They didn't have meaning to me in terms of, what it meant at work. And a lot of them, quite frankly, I love how you described it when I said this. This is several years ago, but you were like, this is financial services. Those things are table stakes. And so you had a really good way of thinking beyond just the table stakes into actually meaningful values. So I'm going to shut up and let you push into that. Yeah, Tommy, excellent kind of overview. And I use this with organizations all the time that those kind of table stake, one word, 
if your core values could be somebody else's, then they're not your core values. And that they become then table stakes. So when we say integrity, you go, well, every company in the world needs to have a level of integrity. And what does that mean? What does that mean in practice? And, you know, I took you guys through an exercise. I do this all the time. I did it yesterday for another financial wealth company in Tallahassee. We start with, well, who are your clonable people? And, you know, what I mean by that is who are your superstars? Who do you look out into the organization and go, man, they are right for us. If we had an entire team that we could clone and look like Susie or Tim, because they act and behave these ways, what would happen? And I spend time with leaders going, what would happen? Well, your job would be remarkably easy. You'd have these remarkable people on your team. It's the herd you deserve behind me. It's this powerful team of people doing what you want because they're all fantastic. Before I dive in deeper into the core values, I go, the reward we give those people in most of our organizations is more work. We love them. They do great work. They're a culture fit. And so we pile on the work. And I tell organizations, stop doing that and instead go, how do I find more clonable people? How do I define the behaviors, tell people that's what we're looking for, and ask people to act and behave that way more intentionally, measure people on it, talk about it. One of my favorite examples of that is Chick-fil-A, where they're like friendly customer service. And you think, well, that's just because they're friendly. And I go, no, they have a principle called core four that they start like your training you talked about. And, and the core four starts with make eye contact, share a smile. So when you talk about friendly customer service from day one at Chick-fil-A, and oh, by the way, when you say make eye contact and share a smile, what are the first two things you should do if you want a job at Chick-fil-A? Make eye contact and share a smile. So they start there. They then say that after those two things, we want you to speak enthusiastically and four, stay connected. So their customer service, friendly customer service, isn't just left, well, be friendly. It's those four things. And they train on it over and over and over. Those are the behaviors they want. Make eye contact, share a smile, speak enthusiastically, and then stay connected. And the stay connected is follow people through the store, carry their tray, follow up with them. So these core values in each organization, I go, start with your clonable people, put a list of them up there. Talk about them broadly and go, what do we love about Tommy? What do we love about Susie? What do we love about Tim? And list the behaviors, group them, and then name them in a way that you talk about in your organization already or that you would like to talk about them. And so, you know, earlier I said willing to sweep floors. That's a great one. I have another organization that says we all kill our own spiders. And that guy is an edgy truck bed window tinting and truck bed liner. They run NASCAR trucks all over the place. And they talk about it in an edgy way that says, you don't call someone in your office to kill the spider. It's your spider, you kill it. And so, you know, whatever fits your organization, and I tell leaders all the time, you got to make them your own, but you have to start with who are the clonable people that are already acting that way in our organization and how do we name it so that everyone can understand it and that we can hire to it measure to it and fire to it if we aren't living those. And beyond that, it should become part of your day-to-day. It's the litmus test of how we all act and behave. It's the standard of how behavior should happen inside our company. And a lot of my organizations that I ran, we talked about weekly talking about our core value heroes. Who are the people that are doing it, that are demonstrating it, that On Friday, we can go back and say, hey, Susan, this week did a remarkable job of willing to sweep floors. Here's what she did. Boom, 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 boom. We talk about it and go, thanks, Susan. We can also, on the flip side, as leaders, do what I did, which is 
core value zeros. And that was never pointed at an individual unless it was me or our leadership team. One of mine that just sticks with me and I use an example all the time is one of my good news Fridays was, hey, last week we had a core value zero senior leadership team. We talk about caring deeply about our customer, our company and our colleagues. And we had an organizational announcement, which two of the people of the six that were in the org change found out about it when we announced it. And I go, that doesn't demonstrate care deeply about our people. So shame on us. You have to be willing to show some vulnerability and say, we're going to do better. Like everything in life, there's a way in which we can set the expectation, move toward it, not punish people, including ourselves, but be open to go, we know we can do better. So, you know, it sets the standard of behavior. It says, this is the ideal behavior we want from everyone. It's named in a way that's unique and specific to your organization that describes your best clonable people. So, David, I love how you've said this. And and listeners, I want to just continue to give you more examples because what David is sharing are how these organizations are taking a core value and absolutely making it their own. I love how you heard him say earlier, if another company could use it, it's probably not your core value. And I'll give you a personal example. One of my favorite that David helped an organization that I'm associated with. This is a financial service firm. You've heard me talk about Vestia in the past. They specialize in wealth management for abnormally high-income doctors. And one of the ways Vestia measures itself is how many incoming requests come in from a client. Because the whole attitude is we should be proactive enough that they shouldn't have to reach out to us. And so we're sitting in a room with David, our leadership team is, and we're asking, we're trying to figure out how do we capture this as a value that is unique for Vestia? This concept of proactive communication, we're doing so much, we're keeping clients in the loop in such a way that they don't have to reach out to us. And by the way, Vestia actually measures that, like how many incoming requests do we get from clients Those are all tabulated to figure out, are there things we could be more proactive? Obviously, we don't necessarily know if they were planning to sell their house and now they did. But if they're asking, hey, have I funded my IRA for 2022? Why are they asking that? Why haven't we made that so easy that they could know it? So I love the solution that we ultimately came to with with David's assistance, which was this principle, this core value of never let them guess. And it is one of my favorite core values. It's one of the, it's a value I have tried to also bring into my own home. Because if you think about it, you know, I've always heard that uncommunicated expectations are disappointments waiting to happen. And so that concept of never letting them guess is such a great way to handle that. But, you know, David, that's just an example. Let's pretend an organization has actually sat down. They've been really, really thoughtful about their core values, their real core values. I love how you said earlier, they need to be both compelling and repelling. Can you push into that a little bit more for me? Yeah. So I always tell people, and it's interesting that um, if you've done a great job, there will be a subset of people that go, I don't want that. And the example I give all the time is the Naval Academy. Their vision is to prepare midshipmen morally, mentally, and physically to be professional naval officers. And so starting with vision, you go, there's a group of 19, 18 and 19-year-old men and women who go, hell yes, 
There's a larger group of 18 and 19 year old men and women that go, hell no. And that's the compelling repelling that the people that are drawn to it are drawn to it. And so your core value should be the same. And, you know, the Naval Academy, it's this mentally, morally, physically challenging and that there's a standard there is by way, if I look at their core values, that are the three they have. Now, they're not expressed in behavior so much, but they do it in a a roundabout way. So when you talk about kind of things like uh, mentally, morally, physically, the moral standard there is you get a whole education on the honor concept versus the honor code at West Point. We won't dive into that, but we're not going to lie, cheat or steal. The the mental part is you're going to be challenged from an academic perspective, but also think on your feet and lead. And then mentally, morally, physically, I tell people all the time, the experience of the Naval Academy is no matter how good an athlete you are, they're going to take you to physical failure. And the challenge of all three of those mentally, morally, and physically for every midshipman is where is your breaking point? Can we find it? And so the essence of these compel repellers, they're strong enough and bold enough, if I go back to the bull analogy, strong, powerful, remarkable, that some people will go, I don't want to work that hard. I don't want to be part of an organization that has that high of an expectation or that compelling of a vision or that we're going to work remarkably hard here. And if you want to do that, here's what's going to be required. I love that concept of compel, repel. And so hopefully we have people in our organization that are actually compelled toward our values, toward our vision. And then what is it that's required of the business leadership to continue to fulfill that on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So, I mean, this is the little essence of fueling the magnet, I call it, that every day our leadership team, most of our organization needs to be intentional about walking the talk. So, We can't just have words on a wall, these core values sitting somewhere that go, yeah, they're there. And, and, you know, I I start a lot of my speaking engagements with what looks like a typical either vision statement or set of core values. You know, it's Dunder Mifflin's. And, you know, you can see that in episodes of Dunder Mifflin and you're like, yeah, they're just words on a wall. They're not alive. They're not the litmus test. They're not the way that we walk the talk every day. And so it becomes this iteration of, intentional focus on those core values, that we bring them to life, that we bring them into the room, that we talk about them at meetings, that in my work with organizations, you know, I go back to these once a quarter at least. And, you know, if Tommy, I came back to your organization for a revisit, we'd go through your set of core values, never let them guess, fly in a V formation. And I would go, here's your five or six core values. Which of those are you doing the best on? Which of those are you doing the worst on? Where do we need the most improvement? Is this a core value that you're still living and doing? And it becomes then, all right, well, we want this, but we're not doing a good job on it. What's required for our leadership team to be more intentional to make sure that we're all living that core value? And so, you know, and I've seen all kinds of examples. One of my favorite is I deal with an organization called Lightbridge Academy. I think they have 80 plus daycare centers up and down the East Coast, and they're going through some rapid expansion. And as COVID was hitting, I was with their organization doing a culture index rollout. And I mean, it was March 10th or something like that. And, you know, the world shut down March 18th or, you know, whatever it was. But they were going through, well, how are we going to communicate with all of our parents, all of our centers? And they have core values that their acronym children. And they were going through their communication going, well, when we communicate, are we touching this core value? And 
that's the best, you know, in the heat of battle use of core values I've ever seen. We have this really tough communication period where we're going to have to tell parents we're shutting down the daycare center. How would we do that in a way that's consistent with our core values? And they were going through that exercise. And that's a perfect example of how they should be alive and well, that this is the litmus test of how we all act and behave. And they were stress testing going, are we doing this in a time that we may take a shortcut and not do it? So it's leadership focus with intentionality to fuel the magnet. And the more intentionally you fuel the magnet, the stronger it becomes, the more compelling all of these things you're doing become and the stronger your herd becomes. I love that, David. We heard from a prior guest, Heather Fortner, and she's a CEO of a very, very large and successful wealth management firm out of Atlanta, Georgia. And what she talked about was in their actual decision-making framework, as they're doing strategic planning, they go back and look at those big decisions. They go back and actually look at their core values and say, how do these values need to inform this decision? And she said they've actually pivoted on decisions in the past because they realized, whoa, we weren't thinking about this with the lens of those values in mind. So yeah, it becomes, are we intentionally living them? Or again, are they words on a wall? And I love that example, Tommy. That's perfect. And why have words on a wall if they don't mean anything? If the whole point is we're trying to drive a culture that we all are excited about, then, you know, they can't just be words on a wall. They can't. That's so, awesome. So you also talked about then not just values. I love how you talked about expectations and you also talked about vision. A lot of times in an organization, part of the act of being a bull is that the visionary in that organization or the visionaries often have loftier expectations than maybe what other people in the organization do. How does an organization deal with that? So, of course, there are many, many ways. I'll share my view as I ran organizations. First and foremost, I was just really upfront about my expectations. So, I would tell leadership teams and those in kind of regular communication and would even frame it in a way that was visual and talk about it and go get used to the elusive carrot sitting in front of us that moves as we move forward. And I go, I'm going to do my best to continue to praise and give you accolades and money and recognition for doing remarkable work. But every time we do remarkable work, like a football team, the goalpost will move a little. We'll have to get better. We'll have to continue to strive and so, you know, I took an organization from 50 million to 550 million in four years. The way we did that is set what many would say were unrealistic expectations. We're going to double the size of the business every year. And, you know, 50 to 100 million was done through organic growth. 100 to 220 was done through organic growth. The next year, we needed to do something different. And what I love about the really high expectations and the exercise is it forces us to think differently. And there are a bunch of ways to do that in organizations. You know, we can do stretch goal or you can find all kinds of ways to do that. But the best organizations in the world, whether they're profit, nonprofit, sports teams, doesn't matter, have this expectations feeling that's just there and present and in the room, I call it. And I would catch myself many times when I was doing either one to one or talking about the team saying, well, the expectations are up here, guys, and we're falling here. And, you know, that's part of it where we just understand that there's this pressing higher expectation all the time and that there's a learning, growing organization behind it and that 
The other side of that is I go, we're never going to pull people into the courtyard and flog them. That's what this, it's not about that. It's about we can pressing it better and which are the ways we can do that. And, you know, it goes back to we can embrace failure. We can look at a lot of things and there's a bunch that is either said or unsaid in your culture. And, you know, I just favor going, let's speak about it and let's speak about that. This is what high expectations look like here. And here's why we do it. And, you know, there's all kinds of examples. The Marine Corps, they talk about it and go, we're going to do more by six or seven than most people do in a full day. And that sets an expectation. You know what's going to come. And once again, it's compelling and repelling. The people that want to be Marines want to be Marines. The people that go, eh, I don't want to get up at 5 a.m. and do a bunch of work by six. You go, then don't become a Marine. And it becomes self-serving. It becomes this fuel for the magnet that makes things right. And so most organizations don't set expectations high enough. You know, if we go back to your quote and say, hey, we're not doing it, then then those are uncommunicated and people will fail. They don't know. The other example I give all the time is you can throw darts on the wall and circle them, or you can put bullseyes and throw darts. And it's remarkable how much better you can do when you aim at something And even if you fall short, you will fall closer than the haphazard, no expectation. And so, you know, I'm a firm believer. Many people push back on goals and expectation. I go, set them and set them in a way that says we're not going to punish people if we don't get there. You know, and there's a bunch in the research now, Google's OKRs. I mean, there's, we could spend forever talking about four disciplines of execution. I mean, it's well expressed in the literature and culture and, you know, business Bibles, I call them. They all talk about it. And then it's, How does that fit in your organization? What's the way in which you do that? How do you set those expectations? How do you set them high? You know, we can go into big, hairy, audacious goal. There's all kinds of ways we can express that. I always just frame it as, are your expectations set high? And, you know, I could go on for days about how you do that and and what that looks like in examples, but people know whether or not, you you know, all you got to do is step back in your own organization and go, do we set high expectations? Absolutely. You know, David, I want to share with our listeners, and I don't think, you know, shame on me. I don't think I've told you this in the past, but one of the times we were together, you actually pulled me aside and you shared with me, I will call it a top three leadership principle that I've needed to hear in my life. So, you know, we all have our different strengths or different weaknesses. You pulled me aside and you said, look, one of your jobs as a leader is you can never just walk by again because... Every single time you walk by somebody, they are either doing an outstanding job or they're not doing something right. And as a leader, you are not allowed to ignore either of those. Yeah, I mean, Tommy, it's uh, that comes from a concept well expressed by Kim Scott, Radical Candor. And before that kind of published work, and it was first she had a video and then a book, I used to talk about the little voice that every leader hears. And, you know, it's our voice when something is put across our desk or we see something that goes, man, that was outstanding, or "Eh, I'm a little disappointed in that. And what I challenge leaders all the time to do is use that voice and do it consistent with your core values and communicate with people, give them feedback all the time. And the more we do that, the more we challenge the expectation, the more we give what I call both care and love and challenge at the same time, and that's really how radical candor she express, expresses it, is that she talks about you have to demonstrate that you give a damn, that you care deeply, and that you have to challenge directly all the time. And that comes both positive and negative, in my view. You have to give people praise when they did remarkable work and put your arm around them and go, 
Tommy, that's the best work I've ever seen you do. Yeah. Awesome. Keep it up. How do you keep doing it? But also be willing to go, hey, I don't know what happened with this report. You give me this every month and this month's report looked kind of like crap. Is there something going on? You know, what's going on in your world? So, yeah. So, you know, David, we see also in the leadership literature that for people to be able to receive that kind of that time that you tell them I'm disappointed to receive that in a constructive manner rather than a destructive manner. We see that the level of praise to kind of that criticism, I've seen everything as low as five to one. I've seen higher like eight to one or 13 to one, depending on who the researcher was. But I can certainly tell you in my businesses or in my family, there is an absolute truth to that, that if I haven't spent the time noticing what they're doing really, really well, it comes out a whole lot worse when I am just pointing out the flaws. Absolutely, Tommy. It needs to be balanced in the other way for sure. And even when you're doing the negative criticism, I talk about the difference between giving feedback and coaching. Coaching is forward-looking. Coaching is I have full confidence you can make the next play. Coaching is, you know, and it's the same as parenting. It's I'm giving you this because I love you. I'm giving this because I care and know you can be better. I'm giving you this because I give a damn and I want better for you. You know, you got to find your own way in that. I'm very clear for leaders is that we each have our own persona, our own method, our own way. And that, you know, some will be more demonstrative when I say put your arm around someone's shoulder. Some people would never do that. And some people would do that every day. And you got to find your own way to express that and communicate, give the feedback and you're dead on. It should be more positive more of the time. And the negative should demonstrate and or I call it challenge. It doesn't even have to be negative. The challenge to do better needs to come with a voice of I care. Otherwise, it just feels like you're tearing people down. And so I recognize right away when you say at home, you're like, it's critical that we do that at home and at work. You know, we each have dual roles as leaders for sure. So absolutely. So there are a lot of organizations out there where the culture just is not good. I mean, I, I don't have a better way to say it. And a lot of times what I see are people that will say things like, oh, our culture is terrible. It's awful. And yet they're still there. It, what would you say to that, you know, mid-level employee in an organization with 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people that? It was coming to you saying, David, our culture is a mess and I'm just a little piece of the cog. Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of leading from the middle principles here that we can talk about. There's a way to impact your small sphere of influence uh, behind me, the herd you deserve. I talk about that all the time. That is what you put into organizational culture and your people you'll get back. And that whatever you've put into is giving you the result and you have what you deserve. So. In that kind of, I'll call it situation, Tommy, each individual is left with a choice. Can my sphere of influence be impactful enough to change this place? Can I change it in my small team? Can I influence it and lead from the middle? Or again, this magnet is repelling me. And what do I need to do to find an organization that I'm compelled and more consistent with? And those are tough decisions for each individual, for them, their family. But, you know, I always go, you can impact your small corner of the world. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that you can impact the team. You can take that on yourself. You can have a charter inside your team of four and go, despite what's going on around us, how are we going to treat each other? 
What's our charter? How are we going to act and behave? What's our own set of core values? What's our expectation toward each other? And that when you do that, your little small herd of four will be better than the collective organization. Now, is it enough to change the situation? It's a start and you, you never know. But I also fully acknowledge a couple things in that, which is there are places in which you will be more compelled and you have to potentially search and find those. And, you know, this myth of the grass is greener. There are plenty of organizations that have dysfunction. When you talked about it, I, I always go to, it's my favorite leadership quote. It's by Drucker. And he says, only three things happen naturally in organizations, friction, confusion, and underperformance. He pauses and then he says, everything else requires leadership. And so, you know, left alone without strong leadership, we will get friction, confusion, and underperformance. It also says for every leader that's listening, if there's friction or confusion or underperformance, it's a leadership challenge, not a team challenge. And I've used that many times in my career where I go, there's friction, that's my fault. There's confusion, that's my fault. We're not performing, that's my fault. And if you take that view and go, it's a leadership challenge when we see friction, confusion, and underperformance, it will serve you well. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my mentors, David, he said to me, you know, I've come to the conclusion that most people want to do the right thing. So if they're not doing the right thing, then whose fault is it? And he was pointing to himself saying, look, I'm the leader of this organization if I have people that genuinely want to do the right thing, then if they are underperforming, it's my fault more than anybody else's. And I loved that. I loved it. Uh, yeah. I mean, when I work with leadership teams all the time, I go 95 to 98% of your people are showing up wanting to do a great job today. I go, what gets in the way of that is the room we're in, these people. So we need to get out of our own way and make it clear. So, that, you know, that's the confusion part of Drucker's quote. We need to make clear what we want. We need to set a standard of performance. We go back to expectation. And the whole friction thing is we need to engage in meaningful ways so we don't have friction, that we're all aligned, that we're all pulling the same way. We're all pushing hard. We're rowing hard, whatever metaphor you want. But it's a leadership function. And the other side of that, the herd you deserve quote is it also indicates that you can change it. You know, you can deserve better and it requires that you do something better. And, you know, you've lived that. In, in Vesti, I'm sure you saw, hey, we left another company. We started this and go, hey, we started it with a, an intent to do something different and better. The more you live that and the more you do it, the better you become. And there's also room every day to go, and we could deserve better and we could be better. You know, and that's this shifting, never ending higher expectation and engaging with people around the first three. Um, you know, so the essence of leadership is set this clear, compelling vision of future set a standard for behavior that is set in your core values, set really high expectations, and then engage like hell. You know, find people on your team, be present, give praise, challenge them directly. And I go, the es that's the essence of leadership. I mean, Gallup every year looks at engagement and says people are unengaged. And when they ask why, they go, I don't understand where my company's going. I don't know what my role is. And no one gives me feedback. Well, we've just talked about all that. Absolutely. Set vision, Absolutely. Tell people how you want them to act and behave and give them feedback. And if you do that, they'll show up every day and pull hard for you. Yeah. You know, and, and David, one of the lessons I've had to learn uh, as a leader where, you know, my, my story is also full of those failures along the way that I continue to try to learn from 
one of my most important ones is it's really easy for me to show up and engage when things are going well. It's when things aren't going well that it's a lot harder to show up and engage, but yet that's when people need you the most. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that the organizational change, leadership's needed more. I mean, once you set things and you're on cruise control, it's going remarkably well. Yeah, that leadership's easy. And that leadership requires getting a remarkable team, setting the tone, doing all those things. And the hard work is doing all those things to have a remarkable team. Yeah. And, you know, I was just having a conversation with my four sons with my second son. And, you know, he's looking at things going, I want it to be better. And I'm like, hey, unfortunately, everything better requires work. Yeah. (laughs) Everything great in life is uphill. Yeah. Everything. Everything great in life is uphill. And fortunately, I embrace that at a very early stage. But one of those most important lessons I've had to learn as a leader is when things are tough, you know, especially when people are, you know, personally frustrated with me or my leadership, those are the times where I have to engage more, not retreat. And that's uh, unfortunately something I've learned the hard way. So, you know, listeners, I'm sure a lot of you out there that are hearing us today talk about what good leadership looks like. And either you're like me and as you're hearing it, you kick yourself realizing, man, there's a lot of stuff I need to make progress on. And just know there's hope. That is your job is to continue to learn and grow as a leader and continue to do that. And if you need some help, I would absolutely recommend David reaching out to him. And and at the end here, we'll tell you how to do that. Others of you listening today, perhaps you're realizing, man, I have just participated in a culture that actually repels me. And my solution to being in that, and that's happened to me in the past as well, is the way that I'm able to leave and feel great about leaving is to first do everything I can within my sphere of influence to make it better. And if that works, then great, you'll be thrilled and you'll want to stick around. And if it doesn't, then what's happened for me is I've been able to leave with my head held really, really high, knowing I gave it everything that I had. I didn't quit on a team. I didn't walk out. I gave it absolutely everything I had. And so that's not necessarily the right answer, but that's what's worked for me, for any of you out there who really feel kind of stuck in a in an awful culture. Well, do your part to fix it. And if you can't and it still repels you, then that might be a great sign. It's time to leave and move on to something better. Remarkably well said, Tommy. That's great guidance for everyone just to go, hey, what part do I have in this? Can I do all I can do? And if still not right, go, yeah, time to find something that's a better match for me where I'm compelled. Well, David, this has been absolutely tremendous. We're going to move into my favorite part of the episode where I get to ask you two questions. The first question is the question that everybody wants to know. And really, it's just the question that I want to know. And then the second question is actually what I'm sure lots and lots of listeners want to hear. So my question, my personal question for you today is, we have moved into a society in light of COVID. You know, we're recording here in early 2022, where Omicron has just kind of spread like wildfire. And as a result of COVID, we've moved a lot more to distance work or remote work We've talked a lot today about culture and values in bringing people together, measuring them and expecting of them certain behaviors. 
how does that morph and change and how do we continue to do that in an increasingly remote environment? Yeah, so the, the, the long and short answer, Tommy, is uh, the same challenge exists. When COVID hit, one of the favorite things I did is reach out to another speaker that is an improv comedian. And he and I came up with a session called The Art and Science of Engagement and helped both of us, helped a lot of organizations understand that, hey, we're all tied behind Zoom screens right now, but how do we engage in meaningful ways? And we talked about the art side of that, which is this improv principles. How do we communicate as humans? How do we use technology to communicate and not lose the personal kind of art side of how do we connect as humans? The other side is, well, how are we all hardwired and what does it mean in the ways in which we're hardwired? And, you know, what we saw early in COVID is there was a productivity increase for many organizations. The people that went home to work were uninterrupted and got a ton of work done. That for a while we were hyper vigilant on how do we communicate? How do we connect on Zoom? How do we play games on Zoom? How do we, you know, there were all these things that most organizations were doing that now have fallen by the, by the wayside for the most part. And it's stay intentional about engagement. Stay intentional about engagement with what Tommy needs versus what Timmy needs with what, what Billy needs. And what you'll find is each of them needs something different from you. And so, you know, we, we looked at things like social drivers and your high social people when COVID happened were like, they were usually more willing to accept the change. But after two months of being sitting at home in their basement going, I'm dying a slow death here. I need to see friends in the office. I need to sit at the water cooler. People that were more introspective were more hesitant of the change and were, they went home and go, where's my favorite stapler? And I don't know how to do the work and this change sucks. And, but quickly they got to, oh, I found my new normal and they were pounding it out. So wherever we are in that spectrum, I go, as a leader, you need to go, how do I meet every constituent, every member of my team in the way that they need it. You know, so this engagement piece is deep and it says, I need to have team setting. I need to have individual setting. I need to remember that my high social people need socialization. I need to remember that my high organized, effective people need structure and discipline. I need to remember that my high autonomy people need autonomy. They need a challenge. I need to shine the flashlight on what I need them to do. And that all of that persists, whether we're talking face-to-face -face or on Zoom, and you need to use the technology in an appropriate way and also stay connected. And, um, you know, I'm finding a, a bunch of teams that are comfortable going back to in-person and taking appropriate precaution. You know, at, at the long and short of this, there's potentially all kinds of political cloud around this. I always just look and go, this is just a risk equation. And all of us need to measure the risk equation and go, how much risk are we each willing to take? And what can we do to understand the risk variables? And personally, I've chosen to go, we're going to continue to travel. We've traveled every quarter through COVID. We just got back from Ireland over the holidays. You know, we had to test on the way out, test on the way in, do all those things. Where am I? I go, we're going to go to Ireland. We're going to have fun. We're going to stay at nice places. So, each person through COVID has to determine how they're going to handle that. And as you've alluded to, you got to stay intentional about how do we engage our teams, whether that's remote or not, and stay engaged. It's probably the, 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 the good advice I would give and, and do that in ways that are meaningful for each team member. Well, that's incredible, David. I needed to hear all of that. And I'm sure some of our listeners did as well. 
You know, the real question I'm sure that many of our listeners want to know is uh, I'm sure we have some bulls listening in today and they want to thrive in their China shops. And that's what you do. You help bulls thrive in China shops. So whether it's uh, leadership coaching, as you've mentioned, or helping an organization be really intentional about their own corporate values and the culture that they are striving to build, or culture index in getting smarter or more strategic about the hiring decisions they make, on and on. And I, I know you do a lot more than that. If any of our listeners want to get a hold of you or your company or reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to do that? So Tommy, just a short little aside before I give my contact information, I always give this attribute to my mom. My mom was big on make your small corner of the world a better place. One of my personal mantras is give freely until I shouldn't. So any of your listeners, they go, man, I just need some help. I want to have a quick conversation. I want to talk about any way in which I can move my organization forward. I love those conversations and would welcome them. So The easiest way is just to find me either on LinkedIn, Dave Quick, Helping Bulls Thrive in China Shops. You can reach out to me at my email, dave at helpingbulls.com. You can go to helpingbulls.com. You can text me, which is the ultimate way to reach me. And my phone number, I'm happy to give it, is 727-470-0877. Multitude of ways to find me. Happy to have the conversation. Happy to give freely and help you in any way that I can. So, If there's anything that was appealing about today or you have a challenge and you just want to have a uh, conversation, I'm more than happy to do that. And if I can help, I will. And if I can't, I'll say, hey, I can't help you, but I may know someone that can. So, David, it's been tremendous to have you. I really appreciate you joining us and for everything you've done to coach and mentor me from a personal standpoint and for organizations that uh, I get the privilege of doing life with. Everybody listening, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. I want to throw this out. Many of you have not reached out to me on LinkedIn yet, and that is a place I am happy to connect with people. So please do that. You can find me under Tommy Martin and Mammoth. That'll get you right to me. Please send that connection. And if you put in the personalized invite, if you say beyond the ordinary, I'll know you're coming from the podcast. I will definitely accept that invite. So reach out. And again, we just want to thank you for being here. Thanks so much for joining us at Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.